As a business leader, you know attracting top talent is just the beginning. Real growth happens when you lead yourself and others well. Creating a company culture that attracts, nurtures, and retains the best of all things. We'll teach you how to make an impact through a holistic leadership approach. Reframing success in leadership. This is the Talent Magnet Institute podcast with your host, Mike Sipple Jr. I want to welcome everyone to this week's episode of the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. I have the distinct pleasure to be here in the studio with Lars Schmidt. Lars is the author and podcast host of Redefining HR, also the founder of Amplify, an HR executive search and consulting firm. Uh, Lars, you and I have met through a lot of your writings, which then connected us on Twitter, which then connected us on LinkedIn. So it's a real pleasure to have you here with us today. Yeah, well, I appreciate you having me. It's good to connect live and always fun to connect podcaster to podcaster. So this should be good. That's right. That's right. Well, I wanted to get a little in-depth in the areas of your focus, because I think one of the unique positioning is that you focus in the progressive wing of the HR function, working with CHROs, CPOs, heads of people throughout the world, as I understand it. And I always like to ask, what does progressive mean to you? How does that show up in the workplace? Yeah, I mean... So do we have an hour, right? I'll try to, I'll try to keep this short. <laughs> I'll do some kind of comparing contrasting between progressive HR and kind of legacy HR. Progressive HR is, is strategic and proactive as opposed to kind of reactive and administrative or when you look at kind of the real kind of legacy personnel type aspects of the function. They're very secure and confident in their value to the business. So there is no, you don't hear progressive HR leaders talking about a seat at the table. They have it. Some companies, they built the table. So there isn't that insecurity. I think when you look at legacy HR, you know, a lot of them had command and control structures where you know, they kind of designed everything to flow through HR. And they did that, you know, again, with that quest of the seat at the table, they saw that as a pathway to power. But the reality was, is it pissed employees off. It was unnecessary. It was overly cumbersome. It cost them respect rather than gaining them respect. And so modern operators, they realize that their role is to kind of create the framework for the leaders to lead and the employees do their best work and get out of their way, be there to support them, but not to over-engineer processes and systems and certainly not to have everything flow through them. They want to actually be there to support, but not to have to you know, sign off on things or, or create policies for the sake of policies, right? I think you know, that's another distinction is legacy HR teams created policies that were oriented, you know, in my view, too heavily around compliance. And so it was, you know, okay, what's the worst possible thing an employee could do in this scenario? Great. Let's assume every employee is going to do exactly that. And let's build a policy to safeguard against that. And that's ridiculous. Let's assume that we're hiring adults. Let's assume we're hiring people with good intent. Let's, you know, create a policy for the many instead of policies against the few. And if you have somebody that you have to address on an individual basis, you address that. But you don't just assume bad intent. And so there, there's so many different criteria around that. I mean, being data-informed and driven is another component contrast between legacy HR and modern HR. I think the, the style of leadership is also a bit different. I think modern HR leaders are, you know, they're much more empathetic. They're vulnerable. They're real. 
They're willing to share their own personal experiences around you know, life events. And I think in doing so, they're able to connect with their teams more deeply than you know, that kind of archetype of an old school HR model. They're always you know, kind of buttoned up and polished and you know, in a lot of ways inaccessible to the employees. So I don't want to take up the whole hour on that. No, it's good. This is so good. Those are a few things that come to mind. I mean, you interact with HR executives all over the world. As you dig into individuals' history, what makes the shift? What helps an HR leader, a chief people officer, create the shift in their own mind to be the one who says, you know, I design the table. I don't need to fight to have a seat. I ensure that our organization was data informed because business strategy matters. Yeah. I'm one of those enablers. I'm part of the mechanism to execute strategy. The only way you execute a strategy is through people. Mm -hmm. What triggers that switch for people in their career? Yeah. You know, I think that a lot of them, first and foremost, they're business operators who focus on people and people challenges. I think that's certainly a difference between legacy counterparts and modern operators is that they, you know, one of the things I think is really interesting about the field right now, and this certainly applies to CHROs and CPOs as well, is you're starting to see people coming into the field from other areas of the business with other disciplines, backgrounds, expertises. The history of HR tended to be pretty insular. You know, you'd move into the field, you'd come in as an associate, you'd move up to manager, director, vice president, et cetera, et cetera. And oftentimes the CHRO followed that same path. They never worked in other areas of the business. They didn't really get marketing or revenue or technology or go-to-market strategy, you know, like some of their executive counterparts. And that's the shift. And I think it's, it's less that an individual HR person has this kind of awakening in their mind of saying, well, now I'm going to be you know, differently. I think that, right. <laughs> yeah, the, the profile for people in that role tends to be more entrepreneurial, intrapreneurial innately curious, right? I think that's a common thread between every leading CHR I've certainly encountered is that they're deeply curious. They want to understand how things work. They have that growth mindset to be continually trying to figure out new things and grow and expand. And so, yeah, I think it's less of a turning point of an individual necessarily and more of a turning point for the field as a whole and in people kind of moving along with that. Yeah, so many of the leaders, and we've had many on this podcast that, you know, we've hand-selected inviting as guests because of their approach to helping business and people be successful, right? In many cases, regardless of function, right? Yeah. They're leaders that believe in the philosophies that we proclaim here at the Talent Magnet Institute that people matter, people want to feel valued, heard, and understood. We should invest in those around us and we shouldn't build fiefdoms and silos throughout an organization, but shatter those and break those down and work as a team. And what does real team culture look like? As you have helped shift organizations, my understanding, like um, us in the executive search space, that organizations come to you and say, Lars, we want to hire the modern HR leader to it may be a new CEO, it may be a current CEO who wants to change the value proposition of that aspect of their business. What do you typically challenge that person back with to see if they're really willing to change? And then, you know, how do you help them start moving down that path? Yeah, I mean, I think I start with why, you know, especially if it is 
a transformation effort, right? And so they had a, a legacy-oriented team. Now they want to build a, a progressive modern team. I asked them, you know, why? I asked them what, meaning like, what does that mean to them? What are the capabilities? If they have that type of a team in place, how will that impact the business? What will change? What are you expecting to change from this, you know, increased capability of the HR people function? And then from there, it's also kind of, you know, making sure they understand that it's not, an, it, they're not just hiring a person if they want to make that shift. It's not just bringing in a great CPO one. operator. Yeah. Like you've got to have the budget. You've got to be willing to invest in their team, in their resources, in stripping away bureaucracy so they can do their work. That's one thing that a lot of CEOs may not understand. They may not appreciate is they think, okay, I'm just going to hire a progressive CHRO and that person's going to solve all my problems. No, they're not, unless you're willing to actually invest in investing in not just them, but in their vision. So that means probably different people on the team. That means, you know, tools and resources and technology. That means, you know, stripping out some of the processes that don't serve the organization anymore might be holding you back. So I make sure that they understand because I do do that vetting up front. I'm not going to work with a client that doesn't understand all of what's involved to not just bring that person in, but create an opportunity and an environment for them to actually do the work that they can do and be successful. If it's just a matter in their mind of hiring that person and that person's going to solve all the problems, they're not. And I'm not going to work on that search because I don't want to plug a person into that environment, but also they're setting themselves up to fail unless they're looking at the big picture. And I don't want to enable that. Yeah. Themselves and the individual they would bring in, right? Because, yeah. I mean, we've both been in those scenarios where they assume, you know, I always tell people, did you ask why this person was successful in her or his last role, right? Yep. Because a lot of those tools and teams, it takes a team to help people to help create transformation. And yep. it doesn't just take a team. It takes a team of people that are extremely aligned and believe in said mission to create that transformation, right? So I yeah. love that thought process. So with those listening, as you're thinking about upshifting, leveling up, transform, all of those key buzzwords that people bring up to folks like Lars and I, it's more than just a person. It's yeah. about a culture change and attitude, the resources and the capabilities of not one, but many that you're gonna be investing in when you take those next steps. Share with us a little bit, Ujana, jump into your book, Redefining HR, and your podcast. Can you kind of give us a little bit about what was the vision that you created when you created the podcast, and what were your goals, and, and has it met those? Yeah, pretty cool that we're like, I think Tevin had said, I haven't even referenced the mustache yet. So for viewers <laughs> out there, this is a November mustache. I'm not an everyday mustache guy, but as I, as I look at my camera and I the mustache jumps out of me. I thought I had to, I had to add that disclaimer. This is my uh, 13th year growing a mustache for charity for November and hence why I look like a 70s cop. So the book, you know, the book really uh, ties back to the podcast, which ties back to a series I did last year in Fast Company. So last year I dedicated my column in Fast Company. I've been a contributor for them for four years on this notion of 21st century HR. And what I wanted to do in that series is basically every piece that I wrote I wanted to illuminate modern people practices and how they operate, how they're different, who's doing that kind of work, what it looks like, you know, really to kind of shine a light on progressive and innovative work that's happening in the field. The podcast spun out from that because I wanted to, you know, fast company stories are on average about a thousand words. 
there's only so much you can cover in that. So yeah. the podcast allowed me to actually go much deeper. So for most of the pieces that I wrote, I would uh, record a podcast on that topic and embed it in the bottom of the story. So if a reader wanted to go deeper, they could listen to the podcast and obviously okay. get more depth. The podcast then turned into a weekly show because there's just, there's a lot I wanted to explore. So many great people. And yeah. I usually write every six or so weeks for Fast Company. So the cadence came up. And so I was interviewing, you know, CHROs and CPOs from HubSpot and Spotify and VaynerMedia, MasterCard uh, and CEOs from Basecamp and, and other companies. And so it was interesting to me that there was so much wisdom being shared on these podcasts where I was thinking, another thing that I did prior to that was co-founding the HR Open Source Initiative. And so there's, I'd spent so much time at watching the evolution of the field and more specifically really being embedded inside of you know, what I would kind of frame as like the top 10% of the HR and people ops field. And I wanted to you know, find a way to kind of document what I'd been learning. And you know, the podcast and blog posts and fast company pieces, you know, those were all great, but those are all just kind of touching little pieces of it. And ultimately that led me to the book is I wanted to write something and just kind of essentially document all that I had learned in the last, you know, certainly five years, but probably even going deeper than that and really create a book that was a blueprint, if you will, or a framework for modern HR. And so that's really the genesis of the book. I think what was important to me also is I didn't want to write, there's lots of analyst books out there, theoretical books, um, books that are not written by practitioners doing the work. And I'm also not a practitioner doing the work. I'm a consultant. I've, you know, I haven't been an operator in-house for seven years, but I'm deeply connected into that world. And so it was really important to me to infuse the book with stories and case studies and personal anecdotes from practitioners doing the work. So I think I have interviews and quotes and case studies from over 50 practitioners all around the world to kind of bring each chapter to life so readers can not just see like contextually, why is it important to think about you know, diversity and inclusion in this way? Why is it important to think about people analytics in this way? But they can see tangible examples of their peers and what they're actually doing and building and learning in that space. And so to me, that's really what made the book come alive and you know, really connect. It wasn't necessarily just my framing and my perspective, yeah. you know, that's as a certain amount of utility, but you know, it was really about all of these other voices and perspectives coming in and sharing, you know, their own playbooks and how they work. That's great. And highlighting the success too, right? I mean, what yeah. greater honor than to be quoted in a book on the blueprint of modern HR yeah. and, and celebrating this. I would say yeah. uh, not and just failures too. failure as well. I mean, there's a lot of rich learnings and failure. And we don't talk about failure enough in the industry, right? We're always celebrating our wins and talking about the cool stuff that we do. But, you know, if we, we can't talk about our failures and the richest part about sharing failure is hopefully helping your peers and your counterparts not make those right. same mistakes yeah. that you did. Yeah. So yeah, that's a really key part too. Yeah, I was just having an interaction today where we asked the question of what's important to be on a leadership platform, a learning management system. And one of the feedbacks was just that, you know, I want to hear from people more experienced than me. And I want to hear about their failures, their bad decisions, so I can learn from them to help me craft. You know, I think people look to resources like this, Lars, that, you know, it's mentorship, right? It's people coming alongside and hearing the stories and saying, wow, that, 
that's really thoughtful. I want to go a little deeper. I want to look into, you know, the redefining HR book by Lars Smith. I want to hop on his podcast. I want to learn more about Talent Magnet Institute and see how they go deeper. I mean, that's the beauty of this platform and the medium to help others learn, engage, create community, which is why we're here today, right? Yeah. So share with me a little bit. You mentioned HR Open Source Initiative. Can you define that a little bit more for our listeners? Yeah, so um, HR Open Source was a not-for-profit initiative that I co-founded with my friend Ambrosia Vertesi, who at the time was the head of people at Hootsuite. And basically, we wanted to see if we could create something that took a page out of open source software's book. And the, the idea of you know HR historically has been very siloed, very closed off. People didn't really share how they did what they did. And that was a massive limiting factor to innovation in the field. And so we said, what if we, what if we flip that and took a page out of software's book? And obviously, open source and software has revolutionized everything we touch and use today that's tech-enabled. So we experimented. So we piloted initially at Hootsuite. After about five months, we spun it out from Hootsuite. We grew it into a community now of, I think, close to 10,000 practitioners in over 100 countries. Ambrose and I both stepped back, so we're no longer directly involved. We turned it over to an operating board, and it's now become an established 501, so it's a formal nonprofit. And really, just the aim was to bring global practitioners together, encourage them to share their practices, their ideas, their templates, their toolkits, with the idea of, uh, of accelerating you know, learning and innovation in HR. How do individuals become a part of that open source community? Yeah, so it's, a, it's all free, hence open source. So all right. of the resources are curated and they're on the website, hros.co. So you can go there, you can search all the templates, frameworks, case studies, et cetera. And then the main community hub is the Facebook group, where again, I think there's over 10,000 members there. And that's where, you know, every day, dozens of people are coming and they're asking questions. Hey, does anybody have a, a template for this? Or I'm running into this issue with my CEO. Does anybody, has anybody encountered this? Have you overcome this? And it's fascinating. I think one of my favorite stories from it was probably three years ago now, there was a Cat 5 hurricane bearing down on South Florida. And somebody on a Thursday morning posted a panicky post saying, hey, like, I'm an HR manager for a company. I've never been through a hurricane. I'm new to Florida. Obviously, you had to be new to Florida to never be through a hurricane. Right. But I really want to make sure we support our employees. Has anybody been through this before? Like, what should I be doing? What should I be thinking about? And within an hour, there's probably two dozen responses from people that have been through hurricanes in Texas and Louisiana and Florida and all over being like, hey, here's some like concrete things that you need to do now. Here's some things you need to be thinking about. Here's some things that that could go wrong that you should be prepared for. In compiling that, you know, Robin Schooling, who is now one of the co-chairs, uh, at the time she was the Facebook community manager, she, you know, her and I connected on it. I'm just like, there's a lot of gold in these comments. We need to get this in the hands of more practitioners. And so I approached my fast company editor and said, hey, uh, we're all freaking out. Everybody's freaking out about this hurricane that's coming. You know, at the time, luckily it didn't do as much damage as it was expected to do. But later that afternoon, that Facebook thread became a fast company post that Robin wrote and was able to be extended out to you know tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. And so it was a fascinating example where like literally the time the morning when the first person had a question to late in the afternoon, where now it's in in fast company, you know, we're able to get that knowledge out in the hands of people at scale. That's just to me, 
It's the power of open source. It's the power of community. And it's what can happen when everybody can come together and you know, work together to support each other and not just kind of their own selves or their own companies. And walk me through a little bit about COVID. You did similarly during COVID, right? Yeah, yeah. So in the early days of COVID, kind of similar analogy to that, I was in a few different CHRO groups and uh, one in particular who had global operations. They were all starting, I noticed the CHROs and CPOs were all starting to talk about how they're making plans. At this point, COVID had just started to move from China to Europe. And obviously it was pretty clear it was heading this way. Yeah. And so I kind of took some of the feedback that they were sharing. I did a bunch of research on my own and I wrote a fast company piece basically around how HR practitioners are preparing for COVID. You know, that was, was great, you know, shared quite a bit. This is in, you know, the end of February. So then we get yeah. into early March and things were moving so fast. You know, I realized that a static blog post, even if it's on Fast Company, isn't the best way to disseminate just such a dynamic situation. So yeah. I created an open source Google Doc, curated resources, you know, Coinbase had open source their pandemic response plan. Lots of people were using that as a framework to build their own. And so, you know, I amplified that and then asked others to contribute, you know, in way in and said, hey, if you benefited from this, creating your own, consider sharing yours back so that other people can use that as a tool to develop their own. And this was an unprecedented situation. Nobody in HR had been through a global pandemic right. like this, right. you know, before. And so we are in uncharted territory. We'd never experienced anything like it. So that doc then went viral, got shared, you know, tens of thousands, I think hundreds of thousands of times because it was just a cumulative index. And this was in the early right. days where companies were beginning to shut off travel, send people home. And yeah, so I had a couple you know, sleepless nights of just curating all that information in real time because I knew that HR practitioners needed it to be able to guide their companies through it and make more informed decisions. So yeah, it was just another scenario. I mean, open source has been steadily gaining momentum, but 2020 is really the year where I think it's just got mainstream. And so everybody um, you know, has been benefiting from it. And when they're doing that, they're more open to contributing to it, which is the whole spirit of it to begin with. Yeah. And I know we, for one, were getting asked similarly from clients and we started providing that resource to them. Like, yeah. hey, check out this link, whatever you come up with, add it back in just so you can continually learn with the global community. How are we when it hit the US? We have several international clients. We do a lot of work in Europe. And we were hearing the feedback of what was already going on there and what was about to embark upon the United States, right? And having a feeling this would last longer than two to three weeks, like we were told, right? So, yep. but that was a great resource. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for immediately thinking how to serve, how to help others build community, how to help others brainstorm and problem solve. And that's a beauty about open source, right? That's kind of the reason for it is because we're constantly iterative innovating, iterative innovation through that process as well. Yeah. So Lars, as you look at the opportunities to create the progressive wing of HR function, you look at the impact that has on businesses all over the world. What are two to three things you would like to have our audience really think about, challenge themselves on to create that type of environment in their organization, whether they're the CEO or, and then we'll, let's do the CEO first mm -hmm. and then let's cover if I'm sitting in that HR seat. How do I 
help my organization move there. Yeah. I mean, I think from a CEO perspective, a couple of things. One, be sure that you you have clear values within your organization and that you're living those values. I think that a lot of the success from a value and culture standpoint within organizations is about leadership role modeling the behavior that they're asking employees to represent and to emulate and reinforce. And when that disconnect is there, it's very obvious. And you've got pretty much no shot of getting employees to really buy into that. I think understand that it is an investment, you know, having a transactional administrative people team and having a transformative progressive people team, there's, you know, light years of difference between them and capabilities, but also cost. It's not inexpensive to build that kind of an organization. And the last piece of advice for a CEO would be invest early. I think that companies, especially I do a lot of work in the startup space and kind of venture-backed companies. And I think you're starting to see them invest much earlier in a chief people officer or a head of people than they had in the past. Because I think that that decision is based on lots of very public failures and mistakes and examples of what happens when you don't do that. And then you build all these bad practices and bad habits that you have to then rip out and re-engineer once you're a bigger company. It's a lot harder to do that than it is to get the fundamentals and the foundation right to begin with. So those would be some tips for a CEO. I think for a chief people officer, make sure you have that growth mindset. I think what's really difficult for CPOs, especially today, is you probably have one of the hardest jobs in the C-suite next to maybe the CEO, in my view. There's so much that you're responsible for. There's so many external and internal factors that influence your ability to deliver for the business and for your team and for your employees. You have different stakeholders. You have different constituencies. So I think it's really important that as operators, the natural weight of all of those things can easily pull your head down and just have you focused on the company and the business that's a huge mistake. There's too much going on around you that if you're not tapped into some of these external you know, resources, whether they're peer groups, networking groups, et cetera, you'll miss a lot and you'll reduce the value that you can bring to the business. So I think that that growth mindset, that ability to tap into ecosystems and networks to support and augment the experience and capabilities that you have is hugely important. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Well, Lars, I appreciate this opportunity to sit down with you today and thank you for sharing wisdom, thoughts, ideas, and inspiration to our audience and wishing you all the best in this big book launch here. I saw that it was number one on at least one of the charts, right? Uh, yeah, it was the, uh, the number one new release on Amazon this week. You know, It doesn't go on sale for another eight weeks. So yeah, it was pretty surprising, but humbling and exciting to see. That's, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, again, I've appreciated being a part of your community, learning from you, with you, with all of the great conversations that you're having. I'm excited to do the same with our audience and the global audience that we have built and now has this exposure. I encourage everyone to connect with at Lars across the social platforms and look up Redefining HR. Go ahead and add it to your wish list or, or order an early copy if you're listening to this before the book comes out. So thank you again for being here to our audience. We appreciate you. We value you. We look forward to helping you continue to grow and helping you succeed in relationships, work, community, and life. Great. Thanks for having me, Mike. 
Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode and help spread the word by leaving a review. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is powered by Centennial, a talent strategy and executive search firm, and the Talent Magnet Institute. You can engage with us at Talent Magnet I on Twitter or Talent Magnet Institute on LinkedIn and Facebook. Please communicate by using hashtag Talent Magnet. Find us in your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and leave a review, as well as share with a colleague. You can also listen at talentmagnetpodcast.com. Our podcast studio is based in greater Cincinnati, Ohio. We are supported by our listeners, clients, and partners from all over the world. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is made possible by a great team that includes Janelle Spence and Christine Lewis of Centennial, Josh Chappelle and Adam Smith of Soundpress, produced by Chris Madine of New Fidelity Studios, and Audra Casino and Megan Doherty of One Stone Creative. Music written by DJ Corbett and Chris Madine. And myself, your host, Mike Sipple Jr., Thank you for joining us on the journey of developing leaders to succeed in relationships, work, community, and life, reframing success in leadership.